Hello and welcome to an episode of Elixir Mixed. I'm your host, Alan Weimuth. I'm hosting alone today, so sad. But not so sad because we have Marcos Ramos here, who is... Hello, everyone. <laughs> who wrote a very interesting article about debugging in Elixir. I know we talked about debugging before, but it's always good to hear from other people what's their, been their experience other than just us. So welcome, Marcos. How are you? Thank you, Alan. Yeah, I'm good. Great. Thank you for the invite. Very glad to be here. And yeah, when I wrote this article a couple of months ago, it was basically writing about my daily experience with debugging. So this is something that I'm really comfortable talking about. Yeah, we were talking before the show, like my experience with debugging is just IO specs everywhere. I totally forgot about the deep, uh, GBD, is it GBD, DGG, PPT, I don't, I forget the characters now. Yeah, it's DBG, it's a shorthand for debug. Ah, that's what it is, okay. Because I think there's also GDB, which is like a debugger too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but GDB is a C, C++ debugger for a native native application okay. Linux. It's a different beast. And another different beast is PDB, which is the Python yeah. one. Okay, it's good to hear you yeah. know about that one. Yeah, I've used that one quite a lot in uh, when I was working with Python. So I remember it's like import PDB, pdb.setTrace or something, and then it stops right there, like basically like pry. It's been a lifesaver. But so you said DBG. And yeah, I mean, maybe we can start from the top of your list because actually you don't even cover... Uh, DBG, I think, within... Do you actually cover it? Oh, no, you do cover it, but with I Tracer. Sh- I think I just talk about it. Yeah. Like, very, very briefly. Okay. Yeah, so you mentioned you got IO Inspect, the IEX Pry, and DBG. And I think we said DBG is like a brand new module put in, right? Yeah, so DBG is, uh, at least how I see it, is a replacement for IO Inspect. When you use IO Inspect, you do have, like, some sort of introspection about whatever you're looking at. But with a DBG, you have more powers on what you can see from that variable, from that function call. For example, it gets you the formatted output, so you can just paste on an IX session, for example. So you can just copy paste and it will work. If you're running on IX session, it will stop and you can pry the code. You can look at the variables, function calls, all this stuff. And it works in the same way as I expect, in the sense that you just put it there and it will work and it returns the same term that it was reading. So you can pretty much replace IO Inspect with DBG at any point. There are some caveats, like for example, if you're running a Phoenix application on IAX, if it encounters a DBG call, it will stop the, res- the request because it will ask you to pry and you have to confirm on the console that you actually want to pry that code. So apart from that, there are, I think it's a good replacement and I've been using it a lot, a lot. Well, it's a little bit confusing, right? So you're talking about DBG the function call, right? Yes. Because there's also DBG there the module, the, right? There is a DBG without the two dots in the front, which is the f- new function from Elixir 1.14. Yeah. And this one is a replacement for io.inspect. Yeah. Yeah. And out, there's also the two-point DBG, which is a whole module from Erlang. So even though they look like they're separate things, yeah, definitely separate things. So don't don't get them confused because like that. Yeah, I went to Alexa and typed in DBG, and I'm looking at your your article. You don't even discuss the DBG function that I can see, and maybe I need to check again. I don't think I, I, see I just it. talk about it and I say, <clears> hey, <throat> it yeah. exists. You can use it. Yeah, uh, but you don't give an example. But, you don't go deep in on it. Yeah, I think AppSignal <laughs> has an article about DBG. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's brand new, like you said, with one dot fourteen, which is obviously the latest yeah. version. And I know one of the big maintainers wrote it. I forgot who it was. I think it's, I forgot the name now. But I know it's it's kind of a big deal. Like, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about the background of that, why they thought that was a, a good idea to add in. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad, right? But I'm, I mean, I own Spect works wonderful. 
for what it is. But do you, do you know anything about the background of why this needs to be there? Why um, they decided to add it in? I think? As, as far as I recall, it was because sometimes the IO inspect would cut some of the outputs while DBG can print everything. And DBG can also print in a way that you can reuse it, reuse it and just paste on an IX session or in a script file. Okay. So I think it's more of a need that arose like over time from developers and they eventually added it to the language. That makes sense. I think I ran into an issue recently with one of the developers over here. He was trying to output JSON and he kept like the he kept the uh, the, the slashes in there for when you have like, Yeah, the escape characters. Yeah, and then he's like, Why is this not working? That's I'm like, kind of annoying. Yeah, I'm like, that's because you're <laughs> you 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 need to remove those backslashes. That's why. Yeah, it gets output as a string rather than printing it as a string. Right. Yeah, and with TBG you don't you don't need to require ix.pry or anything. Mm-hmm. And it's really more a developer quality of life too. Yeah. Yeah. It gives some pretty good information, like like what line something is on. And you don't even need to give it anything too. It automatically just yeah. takes and, and, on code. And the cool thing is that if you put it like in a call of chain calls mm-hmm. with, with the pipe operator, yeah. it even says where it stopped. So you can see which step you're, you're stopped. Mm, yeah. It gives the line of the, the file too, right? Yeah. Yeah. The line of the file, the name of the module, the name of the function which is quite interesting and gives you like... Um, so, for example, mm-hmm. things that probably everyone does is put a lot of calls to io.inspect over the, over the application and you don't know where it's coming from. Usually people use labels to filter that. Hey, I'm here, step one, step two. That's whatever. what I use. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And with DBG, you know, the module, the line, the function that's been called, which is really neat. Okay. Yeah, it does. I think I did, I I started to use it a bit, and it looks like you can. Yeah, there's also I mean, there's more options besides a label that you can have. Like this is like there's like a width you can do for for IO inspect. Yeah, label. you you can do a whole sort of things. But I think when you're writing code, you really want quick information. That's why people rely a lot on IO inspect because it's easy. It's yeah. well known. It's been there like forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. It's uh, it works great. And I I totally forgot about it because it's just yeah, it's it's not. It's not been, it's a brand new thing. I mean, Pry, I think I stopped, I don't even use Pry. I thought Pry was pretty cool to have, but do you actually use Pry when you debug? Sometimes, yeah. For example, sometimes you want to see what's happening during the execution of a function, not after. So you can just require Pry and then call ix.pry. For Elixir, for Phoenix applications, that's pretty good because you usually run mix.sp phs.server on the terminal anyways. So it's really easy to grab the information that's going on there. Especially when you're doing maps or reduces when you have loops and then you can see the evolution of the, the accumulators or something like that. That's when Pry really shines in because you can stop, you can see, you can check execution. Otherwise, if you put like an io.inspect call inside a noon.map, if it has like a thousand of items to process, you just get like a very noise console. Sometimes we don't want yeah. that. And it really depends on what we're doing, right? Yeah, that, that is the annoying thing. It's like, I remember debugging this thing with uh, with one of my coworkers and he had IO inspects everywhere. And I was like, can you just remove the ones that we just don't care about <laughs> right now? Because it's yeah. very noisy. And then like your terminal can always handle like so much characters also, just lines of code coming out. Yeah. And the thing about what I really like about the, the debugging tools that we have on Erlang and Elixir is that you have a specific tool to solve a specific problem. So, for example, I'm doing development very quickly. I, an IO.inspect call will do the job. But sometimes you need a little bit more 
and then you can use dbg or you can use the pry from ax but uh sometimes you don't have access to the code like in a runtime environment like production or staging or whatever and elixir and erlang also offer tools to debug this kind of environment and that's i think that's the main point of these two articles when we start debugging by changing code and adding what's called probes. I, yeah, I'll call probes inside the code so you can see what's going on. And you have tools for that. But if you don't have access to the code and you want to probe it anyways, you can also do that using DBG. And I think that's very, very interesting to see, especially because with the DBG tool, the debugger, not the function, by, by having the power to know, to see the execution of things in production, you can see things that you never see in in a local environment. And there are stuff that you can only see in production because users are using it. There is a lot of real-world data, you know. And I think that's the big value and the big win for having such a, a tool inside your, your language, your framework. Interesting. So with the debugger, you don't even need to have the, the source code or anything. You could just take a running instance and then hit a debugger on it? Yeah, it's easy when we talk, but the functions are kind of confusing. But essentially, with the debugger from Erlang, you kind of write a rejects for function calls. You give it to it, and you give this rejects, but, and you also tell the debugger which process you want to listen. So, for example, if I have, for example, a Jane server that has a handle call function, for example, I can tell the debugger to only listen for that process and only for the gene calls, calls, right? Handle call, sorry, for handle call calls. And from that point on, I can see what's happening in that process and I can get notifications whenever that process gets a new call. So, and this is one of the examples that I wrote for the article where we have two separate nodes and they're exchanging messages and you activate the debugger on these two nodes on the process that sends the message and on the process that receives the message in another node. And when you send a message from the IXGL in one in one computer, you see the whole execution, like the user typed in, I received the, the message to, to send, I sent the message to another process, and I printed this message on the other node. And you can do this from one computer as long as it's connected to the cluster. And that's pretty much it. You have lots of small functions that you can used to make these rejects, let's say, of functions more specific. But that's the whole idea. You'll tell where to look, and it will look for you, and you get notifications about that. Mm. Oh, that yeah, that's part of the runtime tools, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think a lot of people actually know about the runtime tools and actually what's in it. I mean, the tracing for sure is in that. The, so the debugger is also included in the runtime tools. Yeah, so okay. it's available for all Elixir and Run developers, and on whatever environment you're in. It's a good thing, for example, uh, I've used this tool to debug a problem where I have Phoenix WebSockets and Phoenix PubSubs uh, sending messages in a cluster. And sometimes we would drop some messages and we didn't know why we could not reproduce. And then by attaching a debugger to two nodes, I was able to see the messages being exchanged by the PubSub and then identified the problem, which was a case statement that was not handling a message properly. And because the way the process was modeled, we it was exploding in a way that it was not really, we were not able to detect what was really happening. But with the debugging, we were able to see what was happening and see the messages being changed. 
You're saying it's exploding. So you're saying the process was crashing or, or what exactly was happening? The process was crashing, but it was hiding the error for us. Oh. So even though we knew that the problem was there, we knew that something was going on, we really didn't know what was happening until we connected the debugger and we saw the messages and we saw, oh, okay, we are not handling this payload correctly. Were you trapping messages? Is that why you never saw the, the error coming out or what? Because I'm kind of curious about how you would be, now you not have the message. Yeah, let just remember... We had users sending messages, and these messages goes over a WebSocket, and this WebSocket published on the PubSub. And then I don't remember if we changed the payload, and one of the case statements was not ready for that. But it was an async process, you know. So, and this process was not attached to the main; was with task async no link. Okay. And it was crashing. We didn't know why, and it was not crashing the whole tree. But when you saw the message, we understood what was happening. I see. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. With the actor model, even though 99% of the time we use the f- stuff that Phoenix provides for us, that actor provides for us, and we have all this process already there, when you start working with processes and adding your own stuff on top of the existing frameworks, sometimes you get this kind of problem where a process goes wild or it breaks and it doesn't affect your uh, supervision tree. And that's why these tools exist, because this problem happens, you know? Okay. And then you said this, you did this all through tracing and that helped, or that was debugger, right? Yeah. Interesting. So you can actually run, in, like, you're running two instances of the debugger at the same time and then walking through two different nodes? You can run just one instance, connect the nodes, okay. and then the instance where you run the, debug, run the debugger can see all the nodes that you have connected. I see. So, for example, if you have a VPN with your production environment, you can connect the debugger into one machine, and then you can see the whole cluster, and then you can debug the whole cluster. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about, because I mean, when people think about debugger, like usually they're thinking about like, okay, you know, single line execution, I'm stopping my program here. But like Elixir, yeah. it's like you're, you're, you're actually just pausing a process there, and everything else uh, is still running. Not, you can do that. You can do that. The way I use it is that I tell the debugger to send a message with the variable for, to my process. Oh, interesting. Right? Okay. So you can extract the parameters of a gen server call, for example, and get it on your machine where oh, you're looking at. Excuse me. Sorry, it's a little bit late over here. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I had a late night last night too. I had another podcast recording, so I apologize if I'm yawning. No problem. Okay, so, oh, okay. Because one thing about debugger, it's like you, you usually, you pause the execution. But this one, you, for debugger, you don't have to pause it. Because what you're describing sounds more like tracing rather than pausing, or rather than debugging. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the name is confusing. You okay. can use the DBG2 to debug and to do tracing. So you right? can pause if you but want and inspect what's going on. You can. Or you can say, yeah. when you get to the sign of execution, send me a message and let me know like what's the current state of certain variables. Yeah, and that's why it's really dangerous to use this in production because you can stop a whole process from working because you told the debugger to stop the process to pry, to see what's going on there. That's why I usually try to do as much on localhost as possible, if not, and, and if I can connect to the staging or production environment. When I do that, I really want to do as little as possible and not change stuff too much and try to not be uh, write debugging code that's hard uh, for the environment to process. Because when you enable this thing, everything gets really slow, really slow. So you have to be careful when using that. Yeah, but this stuff is really confusing, right? I'm, I'm walking through your article, and 
to me, I'm thinking, okay, Pry, you know, all the stuff for Pry's in there. You're like for debugging, right? You have to run debugger at least. So DBG is also like debugger. So debugger full full word will give you a graphical debugger. DBG yeah. is a text-based debugger. Exactly. Okay. They're the same tool. Yeah. Just different interfaces. Yeah. So that's a little tiny bit confusing, but okay, makes sense. You know, obviously sometimes you don't have a UI or you don't need or want a UI. Makes sense. Now, here's the tricky part is you have another module called int. No relation to integers is my understanding. <laughs> it's actually for interpreter. Interpreter. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But it's like, eh? So I'm running debugger. Okay, DBG debugger. Okay, got it. One's there are different ways of accessing the same thing. Not a big deal. But now the int thing kind of throws me off because it's like, okay, but yeah. you're saying that you need to use this in order to actually work with the debugger. Yeah. So it, it, the, just, so you guys can see so you guys cannot see at home. He's smiling because he knows yeah. it sounds very confusing as I'm explaining it. Yeah. It was confusing when I was learning this stuff. Uh, okay. for example, if you look at, at the some functions from from the DBG module, you see stuff like TPL. What the hell is TPL? And then when you read it, you understand that it's trace pattern local, or you have to trace all patterns yeah. to the local node. But when you look at just TPL, it doesn't really make sense. But yeah, anyways. So the, why do you have to use the interpreter module to work with the debugger? Basically, the debugger knows how to stop processes and get processes and inspect processes. But with the interpreter module, you tell where it's going to do that, right? So, and I even write this in the article. The idea is that you start a debugger process and then this process will hold state about your debugging stuff. You tell the debugger what process you want to debug. And with the interpreter module, you can start doing stuff like, okay, stop at line 60 or stop at the function call X because the interpreter module has the context about the code itself while the debugger has the context about the runtime. And then you use the two together to interpret your code at runtime. That's more or less the idea. I'm not sure if I was clear enough. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. I guess it's going back to solid principles, single responsibility, <laughs> kind of. Okay, yeah, the name is... I've never seen the word int used for something besides an integer. That's why it took me a moment to like, hey, what am I doing? <laughs> an interpreter. Like, I, yeah. of course, yes, we're using interpreter, but I, I nearly forgot because it is a compiled language, right? Usually people think of interpreters, they just run the code without the, the, the language in between, right? So you, so you have yeah. int. And, and if you look at it, the int.ni yes. is like interpreter, load this module. Huh? And then <laughs> because you have the compiled module, like the dot bin, and you have like the source code. And you have to bind the two together at runtime because it doesn't exist at runtime, the code. So you kind of have to bind them together so you can work with. And then same thing for interpreter when you want to add a break. This is actually debugging stuff. Okay. You want to stop execution. And then you say, hey, I'm looking at this code and I want to look at this module and I want you to stop at this line. You have to tell the interpreter to do that, you know? I'm trying to read what the word NI means. <laughs> I don't know if they have an explanation of that. It's, oh, it's I, new interpretation. Okay. New interpret. Yeah, because I, they put I and NI together. So I interprets the module only at the current node. NI interprets the module at all known nodes. So does that mean that you yeah. can have the same module with different implementations? I, mean, I guess you can because you can have two at the same time. Yeah, you can You you can have two Erlang nodes not sharing same implications. Yeah. So how would you know which one you're looking at then? 
that's a good question. Never nope. thought about that. <laughs> I, I never that. run. I never run a cluster with different applications. Yeah, well, I mean, it was never a concern for yeah, me. Yeah, but I mean, that's one thing. The other thing too is, um, if you're in the middle of say like a hot code upgrade and you run this thing, some nodes are running an old version, some nodes are running the new version, which yeah. is a bit confusing. But I'm still a little bit confused about how does it get the actual source code then? So that means you have to be running this within the context of the nodes running source code. So you would say, okay, IEX dash X dash S mix and then connect. And then you would do so, L. Exactly. So okay. the compile code, the compile code dot being file has the information about lines, even though the source code is not there, right? And that's how we gotcha. can get documentation and other mm -hmm. stuff. So you could you can tell the interpreter to stop at a specific line and then you can see that. When you run this thing locally, you can see the source code and you can see the line stopping with the graphical interface and you can sort of debug in a way that we are used to like in a graphical IDE, mm -hmm. something like that. But when you don't have access to code, you have to use other resources like the function of oh, function to fun to MS, which translates functions to match specs. Sorry, yeah, match specs. So yeah, I think I got confused here because to use the int module, you have you have to have the source code, while the match specs you use when you don't have access to the source code. You only have access to runtime information. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I just looking around like some more when you do have the debugger, you have to be a little bit more careful, right? Like where it read Elixir gives you a nice friendly interface. And then when you look at it in the debugger, right, you're gonna get a different looking variables with the underscore at the beginning and then the number at the end for when you rebind everything. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I know I had this problem trying to explain to people that like, okay, these are actually immutable, but then you're like, No, you're 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 changing it here. I'm like, No, 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 I'm not I'm not changing it. I'm rebinding it. It's totally different, man. Yeah. <laughs> totally different. Have you ever seen how uh, Elixir solved the problem? Well, I mean, I heard about it. I know that they're doing some stuff under the hood, but it looks like you can kind of see that where you have the underscore name. Yeah. At. When you when you debug using the Erlang debugger, you see the actual variables. Yeah. So you have like, let's say you have an X variable. And then when you rebind that, you actually have on the Erlang version of that code, you have X underline one and then X underline two. For Elixir, it's all X, but behind the scenes, they are version. They are different variables, actually. How come we're not counting from zero? I thought we're programmers. Maybe they come from zero. I don't remember. It was been okay. a while. This <laughs> <laughs> is thinking about that. I, I got this. You know, I, I ran into. A, I was debugging some code with somebody the other day. He's like, and he's like, "This is the zeroth one," but it said like one on it in like normal people thing. And I'm like, "Doesn't it say one?" He's like, "No, but we're programmers, so we got to talk about this in terms of zero. <laughs> this is, all right, all right, fine. <laughs> As long as we're on the same page. I also get confused with the shorthand for anonymous functions. Yeah. Where the first variable is actually the number one. Oh, yeah. Are you, are you talking the, about the ampersand? I forgot the name yeah, of that style. Ampers, yeah. It's the anonymous. Yeah. It's, a, it's a shorthand for anonymous functions. Yeah. Is that what's called shorthand? I thought there's another name for it. The capture operator, right? The capture style. Yeah. That's the exactly. one. Yeah, it, it took me some time. It's also a little bit weird. Maybe there's something that they have to use the, the first and second. That took me some time to figure that part out because just, it was just so weird. It's just not Elixir-like in my, in my immediate thought process. Yeah, well, I'm good you, I'm, it's good you talk over that. I want to actually zoom into this picture kind of my machine. But the picture you have on the article is a little bit small, even when you click on it to make it bigger. But yeah, because like, I mean, if you have an eight node cluster and you say, okay, at this line, do like do, do some debugging activity, whether it's stop 
or send me a message, that means for any of these mo any of these running nodes and any of these processes could be triggering that. So if it's a very busy process, you may have a ridiculous amount of messages coming in, right? Yeah, that's where the med specs come, come in handy. Med specs are something that are very hard, very cryptic, and I never work with them directly. I always use some sort of tool to translate it to a med spec. But with med specs, it's lot, it's kind of a rejects for functions for function calls, and you can, you can specify what kinds of attributes you're looking at. So, for example, you can do a match spec to match function calls that have a specific v value for the first variable. So, even though you, you may have like eight nodes connected, several processes sending messages all the time, you can still use match specs to filter very specific information. So, let's say that I'm tracing, I'm trying to trace a specific a specific user or a specific message from that user. And I know that one of these functions, I have the user ID, right? Then I can write a match spec that only match functions that have that user ID. So okay. the debugger will take care of the, of the rest for us. That's like similar to like the TPL you're talking about, right? Yeah, over here, DBG TPL, yeah. similar to that one, no? Yeah. Okay. So in the article, what I used was like a very, very naive version of a match spec that was matching all function calls mm. of those functions. But you can be very specific of what you want to see from your cluster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you basically use, isn't that a similar style of like the, what do you call that? The uh, So that's a DBG module. And then particularly, is, it, is that the TPO? Yeah, TPO. Yeah. Because I think the last one is about the arguments, right? Yeah. Four. And you see the First, second, spec. Okay. third, fourth. Yeah, the fourth argument is the match spec. Uh -huh. And I use the name to match spec to match like every function call. So with the TPL, I'm saying, okay, I want to look for the messaging.messaging server module, the handle call mm -hmm. with three uh, arguments with this match spec. And this match spec that I use captures all calls to that function, but you can filter out what things you want to see or things you don't want to see. Yeah, the the, the trace pattern, it, it uses the same trace pattern, it says. So hard for me to understand this pattern and how, how it works. Like, I understand like a bunch of underscores and stuff, but this one, you're just passing an empty list and that basically means everything. Yeah. But how do we, I mean, I want to learn this pattern, right? But how, what's the good place to learn uh, it? <laughs> Even your, yeah, it's so not easy, that's for sure. It's not easy. Even Erlang provides a helper function so you can write a function that is translated to a match spec. And if you look at your function EMS, you see what it means. Because it's a whole thing about position and match specking. And I don't really know how that works, to be honest. Okay, yeah, you can pass in a function and then that's going to... Huh, interesting. But you have to be careful with this function, dbg.funtueMS, because... It generates specs, but you have to tweak around to work with Elixir. Oh, I see. It's not like super, uh, super different stuff. It's just you have to be careful because the spec that's generated, it's sometimes it can get really complex to read, and you have to know what's going on there to do the appropriate fixes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to hear that somebody else is not really understanding the the match spec because I do remember that one. That match spec is used in so many places, right? So we talked about the, the, ETS, the tracer, DBG. ETS, ETS was the was the last one I was going to bring up. Yeah. ETS is a big one. Yeah. To be honest, I've been using ChatGPT to write this stuff for me because <laughs> it's just so that's the useful <laughs> part. Okay. It, it could get, yeah. it can actually guess them properly and put into our Elixir. Kind of. Okay. Kind of. So what you can do is like 
create your function, use DPG uh, and fun to MS, get what the what ChatGPT generates for you, and then you can compare it, test around. It's not really, I would say that's not like an exact science because you have a good feeling there. Okay. Well, it's it's so you're saying even ChatGPT cannot figure this thing out entirely. Yeah. All right, then yeah. I, I don't feel so bad anymore. Usually ChatGPT can figure everything out these days. <laughs> All right, I don't feel so bad anymore. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and you can also do a custom. You can do a custom handler for the for the uh, the tracing too, right? And for debugging. Yeah, and that's what I use in the article as well yeah. because debugger from Erlang will spit Erlang stuff. Yeah, and it's very Erlangy. <laughs> If oh, I yeah. can say that. You like and like then, the strings uh, have the binary stuff at the exactly. end. Yeah, that's really annoying. So I use that handler to actually translate it to something more of the Elixir world that I can understand. That's nice. And this is where you actually want to connect to the outside world. If you want to connect this to mm-hmm. open telemetry or telemetry and send data. Of course, this is not something that you want to do in a runtime because you're making the application slow so you can uh, debug it. But it's also a possibility that you have. You can connect your tracer information directly to your trace vendor, your telemetry vendor. And the idea for this article was more like, hey, there is this tool and uh, it's possible to match spec. It's possible to connect stuff to the outside world. You can run it in clusters. You can run it in your local machine. That's how you use it. And that's the starting point because it really depends on what you're going to do, what you're going to inspect, what you're going to debug, trace. And if you look at the DBG module or the, or the int module, you see that's a lot and lots and lots of functions. And they each do something very unique and very different. And it really depends on how you do that. So the idea of this article was more like to present the main ideas like mm-hmm. function match packs and debugging and interpreting a module, connecting nodes, you know. And also the example that I gave, that I wrote for this article, where two different nodes exchange messages was intended for showing, showing, showcasing uh, these tools. So you can see like, the, like a starting point, like, hey, I need to do this. I need to debug my application. Where do I start? Yeah. And I think this article does a good job at starting and showing the, the, the way to start debugging and stuff because once you get the the ideas like okay you have a process function calls nodes and how this all plays together with this information you can write your own tracing stuff your own debugging uh, scripts yeah i like that you show like an example script like okay you know let's let's put the last few pieces together into an exs script elixir script or i don't know what that's actually mm-hmm. called i guess it's called elixir script so dot exs file yeah. You know, you create your handler, your custom handler, you start the debugger, you start the tracer, you attach it to the nodes, and, you know, you just start checking everything out and how it's all going. And that's that's really nice. That's, uh, that's like a nice little like helper that you can add into your production system to see what's going on. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, and you can use, you can use the script as a starting point and customize it uh, for whatever you want to look at in your application. It's not copyrighted. There's no, there should be a license on this one, right? MIT or something, so we don't know. Oh, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's actually open source. It's in the... Oh, is it? On my GitHub account. It's I think it's MIT. Oh, great. Now I can use yeah. this and don't need to give you any... I think you don't need to give any feedback <laughs> or any... Uh, you don't need to point back to anybody. Yeah, I think MIT, MIT is like very permissive, like do whatever you want. Yeah. I don't care, right? Yeah, I quite like the MIT license just because I don't need to worry about anything. It's like, here's something cool I made, but guess what? No warranty. Do whatever you want. Don't care. Yeah. 
So MIT license is pretty nice. Yeah, this is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the stuff you can do with Elixir and Erlang is crazy. Like, I, I actually, I learned something when I was watching this video where, like, this insurance company, they had a Super Bowl ad, their their site got swamped, they found an error, they, they trace it out. And then the really cool thing is that they managed to fix the bug locally. And then without even deploying, you can actually just code push your module into a running system yeah. and it just updates. I was like, whoa, that's it's not a hot code upgrade even. It's it's technically not a hot code upgrade in terms of what we think about. <laughs> you don't do any deployment. You just like connect and just push. And it's like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's not something that I really wanted to do like in when I was... When I'm on call, yeah, like you have to to have the nerves to do that, right? But if you ever need but to restart really... your service, it's going to be the old code, right? That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But one thing that I really like about Elixir is really the process and the the actor model because you can do so much crazy stuff with that. And as I said, I'm working with AI lately over the past few months. Yeah. And uh, even though the tooling is not there yet with Bumblebee and NX, it's evolving fast, but for example, we have this use case where we receive some messages from a customer and you have to process some modules to extract data from these uh, from these messages. And on Elixir, I can just run task async, run this model on this input, and I can just wait. So I can run like dozens of models at the same time in parallel. And if one of them crashes, it's okay because they're different processes. I don't care. And while I was writing this, I was thinking, if I had to do this like in Java or Python or whatever other application that doesn't have this actual model, it would be like a pain because I would have to start a thread and then I would have like semaphores and logs and all sorts of stuff that I can just like, I don't, have, I don't even have to think about it because it's there, you know? Mm. I think this this is the secret sauce of Elixir that really makes me happy as a developer. Yeah, I just wish other people would give it a chance, you know? Everybody just like, oh no, <laughs> Elixir is too new. It's like, mm, not exactly. It's kind of like another flavor with some good stuff on top of uh, Erlang, which is battle-tested and supreme. It's... Yeah, when you see the debugging stuff and applications and all the, 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 all the tooling that we have on Erlang and Elixir, these are all stuff that we see new projects showcasing them as a new stuff. Mm. And when you look at Erlang, it was already there all this time. Immutability, supervision trees, you know. Well, the observer itself is actually pretty crazy. Like, I yeah. don't know of... I guess JVM has something similar, but I can't think JVM of... JVM does, does, have, does a have that. Launchpad or something, launch something, I think. I forgot the name. You have a different a set of different tools yeah. uh, because Java is really old at this point. Yeah. So you have a different UI, so you can look at that. Probably Java Swing. But yeah, you have this, yeah. <laughs> you, you you have all this stuff there. Yeah, but I mean, like anything else that has something like this? I mean, I guess you can, maybe you can count the Chrome tools uh, if for JavaScript kind people of, in the front yeah. end, kind of. But like, what else has something like this? I can't think of anything. Like building in the language where you can just open a terminal and observe a start? Yeah. I don't think we have that. Yeah, that's like the crazy part. It might be wrong, but I never heard of it. Exactly. That's like the crazy part. It's like, come on, why Why is this thing that's built in the 80s have like a built-in GUI observer where you can start doing whatever you want and just kind of take running nodes and push fixes, you know? Yeah. Everybody wants to be able to hot, hot code push updates. Well, now you can, but I don't recommend it. It's because if it gets restarted, <laughs> that's the problem. But even if you do something like that, you can still use like tools like tracing and yeah. debugger to monitor what's happening. And, and that's why I said that the two exist because the problem also exists. So probably they run the same problems that we run like in the 80s 
And that's why this stuff was built at that time. They weren't facing all the stuff that all the problems that we see today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I heard they used to like test this stuff by just yanking out wires out of the, the system and see what happens. How does this thing recover? Yeah. And Erlang was designed to run on computers that would break, but on clusters that should not break, right? And I think all the good stuff that we see now comes from the pain of these developers 30 years ago that had to create all this stuff so their system would work flawlessly. And now we can benefit of all this, this tooling that was built over these last 30 years. Yeah, and I need to crack open. I mean, I think maybe kind of let's let's kind of ask you about like, how did you manage to learn all this stuff? You didn't just crack open the uh, Erlang documentation and start reading from cover to cover, I'm guessing, right? No. First, because it's a very technical documentation. Even for developers, it's hard to, to read because it assumes that you know a lot of this stuff. And I'm not an Erlang developer. I know a bit of Erlang to do some stuff here and there, but I'm a Lexa developer, right? And the first thing that I tried to have was an IDE that could debug Elixir code for me. We do have some extensions for VS Code. We do have some extensions for IntelliJ, but none of them really work flawlessly. Like I was a Java developer before and the debugger on these IDEs is like super, works really well. Even JavaScript, if you debug on a Chrome browser, it's like, perf- it's like perfect debugging tools. And we don't have that on the IDEs that we have for Elixir. And that's where I started to look for options to debug Elixir code. And then I stumbled across some forums and some people trying to do the same thing. And they would all say, hey, Erlang has these tools, right? You can use that. And then it was really really like a trial and error until I understood how everything fit together. So it was more like a process and not really something that I intended to do. Because it was for me, I would just press a button on my IDE and get the breakpoints and everything. But this thing was not there. That's why I went for the debugger and stuff. Yeah. I still miss like having the debugger within my IDE, but uh, this this still works. I mean, the nice part is that you can use this one within like a running system. That's probably like the nicest part. Yeah. And also because everything is immutable in Elixir, it's easier to debug. So even though I miss having an option or two to debug my code on my IDE, it's not like a deal breaker for me because it's just more easy to work with Elixir because of immutability processors and other stuff. So 99% of the time that I was debugging something, it was trying to discover what the hell is the value of a variable. Why? What changed that? And I don't have to care about that anymore. Yeah, actually, that definitely is something that was there before. Yeah, but now we don't have that. Now it's, okay, what changed this new binding? <laughs> like, or why, why did it, why is my thing like that now? You know, as it's going through the pipeline, that's a huge If one. you avoid rebinding variables, this is also a problem that you don't have. Oh, true too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you start using the pipeline a lot more, I think it's a lot more easier. Now it's just, I don't know, simple logic errors here and there. Well, for you, it's, I mean, actually, there's something that happens a lot, which I think, I forgot the name of the language now. There's another language on the VM or on the Beam that tries to do a type safe version on the Beam. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I forgot the name. Uh, right? It's Elm? No, no, not Elm, but similar. Gleam. Yeah, Gleam. I mean, they, they actually somehow try to get like the messages to be typed, which is interesting. They have some way to get either exact or pretty close to it. So like you're talking about that issue where uh, one node's expecting a form of the data structure than the other one was sending. Mm-hmm. So that possibly could have yeah. been caught by, by Gleam, if I remember correctly. Maybe, maybe. 
Yeah. I don't particular I, I don't have like a strong opinion for typed versus untyped languages. I think they each have their own use case, you know. But I do miss sometimes it, it doesn't have it doesn't need to be like enforced types, more like annotations. If at least the, the compiler could give me some hints that something might be off, that would be way, way, way more helpful than having a strong type system. And I never, I, I've never seen some language do that, like annotating variables, so you can track like changes on that. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I do like your article though. I think I might keep it up and just kind of walk through it because, yeah, for one of my projects, we have a lot of kind of new people to Elixir, and they've been trying to debug it, and they've been doing. We have a mostly API based backend. We're not using LiveView sadly yet. Uh, I have to try to sneak that in somehow. But they basically. <laughs> hard like test everything manually test everything which is just painful process doing the whole setup again and then trying and it doesn't work and then they make a code change and then it's kind of a painful process so this should probably make things a lot there easier. There is also there is also inside Erlang I forgot the name of the module where you can spin an entire VM and connect to that. So for example if you want to test distributed systems you can actually with one computer one node you can write one of these scripts like I did for the debugging and start nodes with your code, connect to them and test if they're talking to each other. I think it's master and slave is the name of the modules. And uh, with that, you can. Yeah, I think that's it. OK, slave nodes. It's interesting. Yeah. Interesting choice of words these days. But yeah. OK. I think this is going to be replaced on Probably. future versions of Erlang. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, let me read this after after maybe probably tomorrow. Just lay it over here. This is interesting. I didn't you know, this is the this is the problem with Erlang and Elixir. It's too damn big. You can't keep up. Yeah. Not only that, but there are a lot of cool stuff going on there that we don't know. Yeah. Slaves. Okay. So there's a whole module actually called slave. Interesting. I didn't actually get yeah. to the whole article. Oh my goodness. There's just too much stuff. This is this is giving I think I feel a bit anxious right now. <laughs> It's too much stuff to learn. <laughs> All right. Well, no, not you know. I'm a little bit upset that I I, I joined this call today because now you give me homework again. I always get homework every time I have a good guest on. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty cool. Well, if I learn this, anyone can learn. I mean, come on now, don't put yourself down. You know, you're supposed to put yourself. <laughs> let me pull you up. You know. <laughs> but I mean, I, I'm not like English is my second language, of course. Yeah, me even too. Even though I've been used like for years. Yeah. And so you, you understand me, right? When I say yeah. you can understand this thing. Yeah. The documentation is not that hard. It's not that easy to understand, especially dear lung uh, documentation. How do you, but this how is do something you actually learn a programming language in another language? I feel so, how do you, it's, it sounds so difficult for me to like, how do you do that? I, I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. I think it's a I couple never, of translations happening at the same time, right? You're translating the English into Portuguese, and then you have to translate these these contexts into it, another thing. And you're like, okay, how do I relate this to my natural way of thinking? In the beginning, when I started learning programming, was at school, and we had this what you call Portugal, which is like a Portuguese version of algorithms and stuff. Okay. So I learned programming or at least the logics of programming, using Portuguese. And then we translate that to a programming language. At the time, it was C. And because C is a very simple language, it was easy to correlate the two languages, English, Portuguese, and C. But with time, the concepts get really just natural as you work with this every day, you know? Mm, okay, interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. I could barely 
comprehend English sometimes these days. <laughs> it's, it's, it is my first language, but I, I sometimes I feel, oh, I don't even know what's what's going on. But yeah, especially when I when I listen to some of the English over here, it's not about their English is good or bad. It's just like the choice of words is sometimes really difficult. Yeah. Like uh, when I get into the subway, they say, please alight from this side. I'm like, what the heck is alight? I literally like, I'm not kidding you. I lived in China for like, Three and a half years, and I moved to Hong Kong. Within a week of being in Hong Kong, the English is so different mm-hmm. than U.S. that I actually had to download a dictionary, an English dictionary, to, to start to like, because there's so many different words that you know we speak differently. We speak more simple, I think, in U.S. compared to U.K. So it takes some time. Do they do they watch? Do they have like U.S. media in there? Yeah, well, so that's the thing, though. Like, of course, there's a huge influence, obviously, of U.K. stuff. Like everybody over here calls it Aircon. I call it AC. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a Chinese name for it. And, and then there's lots of Europeans over here too. So they also call it Aircon, I think, because it's just proximity to the UK, right? And yeah, so like there's just different words and different ways to say things. Like I had a, when I was in China, actually, my, my boss was Dutch and I'm, of course, American. The internet thing that routes your traffic. So I call that a router. He calls it a router. And both him and I were talking to this uh, Chinese girl about the router. And so he was saying router, blah, 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 blah. And then I said router, blah, blah, blah. And we're trying to give her directions to, just to do something with the router. And she was getting confused about what the heck we're talking about because we use different pronunciation for the same word. So I feel sorry for, for, for other people for this different pronunciation. Stuff. Yeah, I work with people from Scotland oh, and, wow. yeah. and also from Southern United States with that very, very Southern accent. Oh, yeah. So, but because I'm like, English is not my first language, it's easier for me to get the context of what are they saying because I can't, my brain will automatically try to connect the dots, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I was just in UK and we, we were, we were in a lounge with my wife and I, and, and there was a couple from Ireland next to us, very thick accents. And my wife is not so used to it. For me, I just know I, on TV. So I have a guess. I, I can kind of follow what's, what they're talking about. And they were talking to us and I was looking at her. I'm like, does she really understand everything that's going on? <laughs> because even I'm a little bit, <laughs> some of the words I couldn't quite get. So, and I get the same thing. I have another a French guy I work with. His accent's very thick, but I, I luckily he, he doesn't, he doesn't get upset with me when I, and I'm like, did you say this? No, no, no. I said this. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. So that's good. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for, for writing an article and for, for explaining some stuff. And like, again, giving me some homework now to, uh, <laughs> to, to work on. I have to look into the slave notes. It could be interesting. And I think I might try to teach, uh, maybe do like an internal workshop about tracing and, and uh, debugging stuff in production. That's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. And it could become handy. Yeah. Uh, hopefully you never need this in production. But if you ever need it, it's good to know. Sorry, actually, I, I, I think I asked, but I didn't quite get at least what I think is a sufficient answer about how you actually got into the stuff. Like I said, you didn't just crack open early documentation. Did you read about this like on another article and that got you into looking at these things? Or how did it kind of come I was looking radar? into, because I didn't have debugging tools on my IDE, I, was, I started to looking for options on forums, on Elixir forum, on several places. And they all pointed me to using Erlang built-in stuff. And with that, it was like kind of a necessity. It was like, like, it's not something that I wanted to do. For me, I would just press a button, have the debugging on my IDE and call it a day. But over time, I just started to learn like piece by piece, you know, first with IO inspect, then the observer, then the debugging. So it was like more an uh, accumulated knowledge base that I got. 
Gotcha. Yeah, because there's a couple of uh, Erlang books out there that talk about running uh, Erlang in, um, in, by scale or in scale written. One thing that I really like is Erlang in Anger. Yeah. Have you ever seen that book? I it's started reading, but amazing. I haven't finished it. Yeah, I heard it's really great. It's amazing. It's amazing. I think every Elixir developer should read that. It really makes you understand the runtime and how it can go crazy. It's yeah. uh, it's an awesome reading. Yeah, I, I think I got to the part where they started talking about you know how do you handle like lots of load? Like do you start to to shed it and stuff? And I was like, this is interesting. How would you know how to shed stuff and how would you even do that? And I think that they go a lot more in depth in there. I think that's still like the first third or something of the book. Yeah, it's it's on my mm-hmm. desktop again. Another thing I have to read in just no time, <laughs> and it's not pressing. So that's the other thing too. <laughs> so it'll, it'll it'll get read eventually, hopefully. Maybe by the time I retire, but cool. Yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in terms of uh, the, the debugging journey you went on or something else you think we should know about before we move on to picks? Personally, I think that's it for people out there that wants to start using this stuff. I would say to just connect to nodes, start doing this stuff and see for yourself. I think that's the best way you can learn is just trying by yourself. Yeah, well put. Okay, cool. Then let's move on to picks. Yeah, so I actually use a lot of Kubernetes in production. I just find it easier just to run the container. So I've been using this tool called Open Lens. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that one before, but free-based. It's not easy to find how to get it for free, uh, get it for free, but how to use it for free. But it's uh, kslens.dev, and this kind of works out of the box. If you're working with Kubernetes, it's pretty easy to use. And like I said, free, which is probably the biggest one. I'm pretty happy with using that one. Uh, do you have a pick for us? Anything goes? Yeah, anything. No limit. Right. Sky so, is the limit. <laughs> Recently, I started reading stuff that my, my wife is recommending me. I started reading all this stuff from Neil Gaiman. I started with Sandman, and now I'm reading American Gods. Pretty good books. What else? I'm also reading One Piece. It's, I think it's the first anime thing that I've been ever reading in my life. Like it very much. And for the tech stuff... I would recommend reading Erlang in Anger. Very cool book. And what else? What's the last thing I was reading? Ah, just this stuff. Neil Gaiman and Erlang in Anger. That's my pick for today. Awesome. And with that, uh, thank you for coming on. Hopefully have you again in the future. All right. Thank Alan. And uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me. 